Hello and welcome back to the Ulster Rugby Roundup. The Six Nations is underway and so we have Ireland's opening day win over Wales to look back at as well as a much anticipated game of the Championship in Frostbite in France on Saturday afternoon as well as that. Of course, Ulster's win over Connacht will form the start of our discussion. I say we, it's me, Gareth Hanna in the host chair and alongside me this week, just the one, but uh, nobody better, Belfast Telegraph Rugby correspondent Jonathan Bradley. Hello, Jonathan. Hi Gareth, how are you? I am good, as you can uh, possibly hear. I thoroughly enjoyed the opening weekend of the Six Nations. Uh, I was in Edinburgh on a stag do and uh, spent the weekend singing Flora Scotland, basically on repeat for 48 hours, and now my voice is feeling the effects of it. So here we are. There was no better place to be, perhaps, on the opening weekend, given that Scotland win over, over England. And I somehow found myself as a... Uh, Chief Scotland cheerleader in one of the big pubs in Edinburgh City Centre. So, so here we are. That explains the little raspiness that you're that you're hearing here. But fingers crossed, we'll get through that. Okay. Is this your favourite Six Nations weekend ever? Uh, well, bizarrely, I was actually in Murrayfield when Ireland won the Six Nations a few years ago. So perhaps my second Super Saturday, the Super Saturday. Yeah, when Ireland were like beat Scotland, and then had to wait for France England. We got back yeah, to the yeah. stadium to watch it in Murrayfield. I'm sure some of our listeners were there that day. I was also there that day. Now, the only time I've ever been to Murrayfield. And yeah, we had a great day. I can't, I can't remember how I wangled my way into that. That was pre-podcast <laughs> days, wasn't it? So uh, oh, yeah. I, think, I think my friend... That was, was before I had this job, let alone you having that really? job. Oh, wow. So yeah, my friend had a spare ticket. So I went along to that and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. So yes, that and uh, and this one, though, definitely far above any others. Uh, yeah, it was fantastic. 2015, sorry. I think I said 2014 or 2015. Was it 2015? There you are. Time doesn't belong, March. No, we're getting old, John. So we'll begin then before we get on to the Six Nations with Ulster's 32 12 win over Comet. Now, well, I said before we talk about the Six Nations, I suppose we'll really be addressing both at once, Johnny, because the big talking point of the rugby weekend across the globe was Michael Lowry and Robert Balakoon, who were not selected by Ireland, sparking outrage from every corner of earth. Big Jim says uh, he watched the match on Friday night and thought, look at that, Lowry and Balakoon have to get an Ireland run out now. Then he says, I watched Ireland on Saturday and thought, no, they won't. Well, Andy Farrell rotate, like you said last week, Jonathan, and Big Jim adds that he agrees with you and thinks Andy should rotate, or will it now just be the usual uh, Italy hit out? So, Larry and Balakoon, obviously, one more Balakoon, really, we had expected last on last week's podcast would, would get the nod. What was your reaction, first of all, to, to those guys and everybody else from Ulster except James Hume being left out? Well, I think whenever you get the injury update, obviously... Um... It made a lot more sense. There probably was less uh, less cause for outrage than there may have been on social media come Thursday uh, Thursday afternoon. Whenever you find that you know Rob Herring was injured, that took him out of the picture. Handy wasn't ready, that took him out. Obviously, with James, with Mike Lowry, where you would have predicted to see Mike Lowry probably would have been where he ended up seeing James Hume. So um, one or t'other there. And as you say, the big sort of shock was uh, that Mark Hansen was going to start. The, the uncapped Mac Hansen and going to start ahead of uh, Balakoon, who's been in and around the squad, at least as a development player for the past uh, two years, now since the 2020 Six Nations. Now, between the team being named and Andy Farrell 
giving his media briefing a couple hours later, it came out that uh, Rob had been injured himself out in Portugal, strained the hamstring, had missed a few of the sessions out there, despite being good to go, obviously, for Ulster. But um, I suppose you can understand the confusion if uh, part of the reason, anyway, was down to injury and um, that he was still playing for Ulster on the Friday. Yes, yes. So presumably then it follows that that wasn't the whole reason because if he's fit enough to play for Ulster, all right, it wasn't ideal preparation, but if they'd really wanted him for Ireland, he would have been there, surely? Yeah, well, obviously Andy Conway wasn't 100% either. He was feeling he was feeling unwell and he started Mark Hansen by all accounts during the house down over in Portugal. And then, and I think you saw a lot of this in the way that Mark Hansen played, this idea especially off the left wing that because it's something that Rob's mentioned before whenever he's come back from camps you know what Farah wants to see more of from him and it's getting involved coming off his wing he's you know he's mentioned that Argentina game where I think we talked about it at the time for the first half hour the ball didn't come his way and it, it almost felt like he wasn't there yeah whereas you see Mark Hansen and as I say I think it comes more into the game plan on, on that blind side wing and the open side wing. But um, you saw Mark Hansen coming in and at times looking like he was a third centre, you know, being that sort of option for uh, for Johnny Sexton. Even in the, you know, even in the build-up to the first try, it's him on Sexton's shoulder passing the ball out to Bondiaki in the corner. So a little bit of a, I suppose, differentiation in the rules of the, the left and the right winger. And we have seen Rob almost exclusively play as a right wing rather than a left. Even when he, whenever him and Conway played together in the summer, it was Conway that switched over to the left. So I would almost look at it in the sense that at present, and obviously things can change, but it almost doesn't feel like Rob's going for two jerseys. It almost feels like he's going for one mm. and it's the fourteen. Yeah, and obviously you know Conway scored twice, and whenever Ireland played before that, scored uh, three against against in the autumn against Japan. So all of a sudden, that yeah. looked, uh, looks rather difficult for him. Yeah, look, a tough a tough selection call, but he responded to it obviously one hundred percent in mm. the right way. We all know how quick he is, but I think we we're taken aback by that uh, burst <laughs> for his first score. It was like. One of those video games where you just press the afterburners button and away he goes. Um, An incredible show of pace. And I would put Mike Larry in the same camp. You know, Mikey was so good in that first half. Really, even the first like five or ten minutes, you were like, you know, he's he's properly up to sort of not prove a point. Like he's not, uh, I wouldn't say it's sparked by anger or anything like that. Obviously, there's a sense of disappointment, but you're just going out to offer a reminder of, what you can do and to take that chance and outside of an international window to show that you belong in the bigger stage, that you shouldn't be back with Ulster, that you should be uh, in the Six Nations Cup. Now, I would be in 100% agreement with Big Jim there. He's basically summed up my thoughts exactly. You were watching the game on Friday and I even the last game, the last line in my report on Friday about Balakun scoring was perhaps now his next touch will be in green. And then you watch the game on Saturday and you're like, well, is he going to change a team that played that comprehensively going to France when France now more than ever? It always did, but now, especially with England having already lost, more than ever looks like the biggest game of the championship. And it's very hard to see. 
which is tough. But then I suppose that's the that's what you want at international level, and that's how tough you want things to be, and you want it to be unfair on on some players because if players playing as well as Robert Balakun, Michael Lowry are playing and don't get into the side, then that's a a very good sign for Ireland. But that's a good point, Gareth, because. The fact of the matter is that good players are going to be left out. Players that are in form are going to be left out. And it's an awful lot harder to uh, complain about when the team's uh, winning nine in a row than uh, at some other times during Ireland uh, Ireland's rugby history when the old joke used to be that it was uh, harder to get out of the team than it was to get into. Yeah, yeah. But well, as we say, all they could do then was... Uh, Trying to try and show in, in some way that uh, that Andy Farrell might have been a little bit wrong on Friday night, even though it would have taken some job to do that. But nonetheless, their performances were were really good, particularly for the opening try. Michael Lowry's footwork was just summed up everything that we know and have always loved about him as a as a player, didn't it? Like it was it was box office, and I think it looks even better because he's so small, doesn't it? Like it makes it, it makes the whole thing look more incredible. Yeah, like, I never know how I feel about this this kind of discourse because it's like, I think probably about 18 months ago, maybe even more than that, I was talking to Michael and I was like, we just done a thing with a, like, a load of national journalists who obviously were interviewing, from the, for, interviewing him for the first time, whereas I suppose bizarrely I've been interviewing him since he was like 15 or 16. Yeah. Um and, you know, all anybody wanted to know is, like, you know, basically, what's it like being your height? And it's just, it just comes across really weird, I think. Yeah. That there's this preoccupation with his height, given that he's quite clearly shown that it's not <laughs> impeding him in being a rugby player. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'd say. Except when he got absolutely flattered after two and a half minutes. But uh, that, that, it didn't stop, yeah. it didn't stop the, him. Uh, the spate of high tackles that he's uh, been victim of recently. Um since even in that just the last couple of games has been has been incredible. But um, you know, he almost created a try even before that that, that first one. And then just the acceleration, the awareness of the space, because at the end of the day, that's what rugby is. Rugby is a rugby is a game where the most valuable commodity is space, finding space and being able to manipulate space when you do find it. And Mike Larry is great at doing just that. So, yeah, a bit of a tangent there, but I, I just don't know when we're going to stop, talk, stop talking about what Heidi is, you know. Yeah, no, it's fair enough, yeah. But, like, there's the same discussions around Cheslin Colby, and he's one of the best players in the world, so, like, it's probably never going to stop, I guess. But So, Robert Balakoon then as well, he mentioned his, his pace for that for that first try, um, but... What did he? What did he show other than that? Do you think he showed any anything? He's learned from the from the Ireland camp or anything? It's difficult because I actually think that an awful lot of, and this comes back to this idea that somebody being selected doesn't mean somebody else has to be slighted. If you know what I mean, because I think yeah. Rob was showing real growth in his game over those European weekends, having just come back in from injury. I think in the kick chase. And the way he was dealing with the high ball, I think we saw, not that it was a weakness in this game, but I think we saw that coming along as a way to get involved in the game more centrally mm-hmm. rather than just showing what he can do out wide. Obviously, he's always been a brilliant defender, which is not something that we say about every Irish back three player. So, you know, I don't think you're going to 
see very specific areas of growth in Rob's game in a game like that. But I think what we did see was the right mental application. Yeah. Because I'm not saying he's never had setbacks in his career or, or anything like that, but everything, because it all, it almost felt like he appeared on the Ulster scene fully formed, like from the get-go, with the exception of injuries, he's been in the team. And I suppose you, you know, stretched that back a couple of years previous to whenever he first started rugby, and it's literally just been very yeah. quickly moving through the ranks and moving and moving yeah. and moving. And then after two years in Ulster, it would be par for the course for his development to now already become an Ireland, an Ireland starter. So yeah, like you're probably right. This probably is the first time he's had that touch of rejection or touch of, nah, it's not, you need to wait. Yeah, because you know, like I was talking to one of his uh, coaches at Enniskillen last week there, whenever we were planning a big Robert Ballacan piece to go along with his first start <laughs> in the Six Nations, that was going to be uh, just just be a lovely weekend feature. <laughs> um, and you know, he was set, he was harking back to a time when he'd, you know, Rob was starting against Racing ninety two in the Champions Cup, and he was head to head with Wani Muff, and his coach asked him to say, you know, one year ago today you were playing against Ballymena twos in the Titans Cup. Yeah. So like, if you think about that rise over that space of time, go through, carry that through line from making your Ulster debut into playing against teams like Racing, being involved in the Ireland camp in 2020. And this is the incredible thing for someone who hadn't watched the Six Nations until 2018. Two years <laughs> after he watched his first Six Nations game, he was in an Ireland camp for the Six Nations. Oh. Then... COVID, injuries, you know, the, the hamstring injury being the main one, almost delay, I almost feel like they delay his Irish debut until 2021. <laughs> yeah. And by November of 2021, he's starting in a near enough full strength Ireland side against Argentina. So it would have felt like this was the natural progression then to play, to start a Six Nations game. And he could have came up he could have not really fancied this, to be honest. Like, you know, he was coming back in, didn't train all week, didn't even they didn't even take part in Ulster's captain's run on the Thursday. Like they just showed up and played on the Friday. So and I throw Nick Timoney into this as well because he played really well off the bench. All of those guys showed up with exactly the mental response and the right attitude that you would have wanted to see from them. Because they could have sulked. They could have been like, even though it was an inter throw, you know, they could have been like Friday night ERC. I wanted to be involved in the Six Nations and not taking the game by the scruff of the neck in the way that they did. Like everything you hear about these guys is about how they're maybe talking to like Marcus Ray last week, talking about how Maggie Laurie is the example of somebody that has such a level of professionalism that being a young player can't be an excuse because if he's that professional and he's that young, then everybody should be following that example. So it's not that it's a surprise or anything that these guys like acquitted themselves in the right way. But I suppose in a, in a wider sense, if you're talking about what you were, what you learned, what you saw yeah. from them in that, in that type of game, I would focus more on that than any of the more micro elements of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair enough. So you mentioned that they're Lowry's first name, which does appear to now be officially Mike or Mikey. I've seen Mikey even written this weekend. I don't like it. I've always known him as Michael Lowry, and I, I reject this, but I did notice on Ulster's official releases last week, he was called Mike Lowry. It's a, it's a disappointing day. Somebody needs to ask him. Well, it's one of those questions that would be a lot easier to ask if you didn't just get two on Zoom. You know, I don't want to use one. <laughs> <on>. <laughs> um, 
yes, there does seem to be a move in official releases that it is now Mike Lowry. So I've been going with Mike Lowry because he has a right to be called whatever he wants to be called. And I assume the Ulster are getting it right. Well, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. So henceforth, Mike Lowry. So Stuart McCloskey was the other name on the Ulster team sheet that was uh, something of a, of a headline. Finally, coming back from injury, too late to be named the original Six Nations squad, but the Glad to see him back for us. Well, that team sheet, I was like, I really hope whenever we were talking this about this on the podcast, we said that Dan Soper said that he wasn't going to play rather than we said he wasn't going to play. <laughs> um, I couldn't remember whether we had or not. Yeah, so basically, if we were giving you duff information, it was only because we were. We were given duff info, correct? <laughs> we were recycling the duff info that uh, <laughs> put out in their press or in their media briefing. <laughs> So uh, a fine return to action, no no less than would be expected from Stuart. Yeah, hundred percent. And obviously he'll uh, he'll get better again when he gets that rhythm back because he was so, I suppose on the very cusp of what you would call decent length injury. You know, it's not the kind of layoff that you're going to bounce back from and feel like you haven't been away. You know, it's been quite a while since he played that. You know, just that game before uh, before Christmas. So. A huge player to get back for this period, obviously, because we talked about it last week, how pivotal this Six Nations period was going to be when originally it was slated to only really be two games and just three COVID postponements and the fact that Ulster are going to South Africa straight away after sort of made this a sizable chunk of the season without those who are going to be heavily involved in the Six Nations. It remains to be seen how heavily those Ulster players may be involved, but anyway. So to get somebody like Stewie back, we all know how integral he is. He's really right up there with, um, he's as important for Ulster as anybody, I think. Um, whenever you look at the change in the side during his absences, so to get him back for this period uh, is massive. No doubt about it. As you say, such a, an important one coming up. The other player we should obviously highlight once again for the what feels like about the 50th week in a row. Nathan Doak, man of the match, uh, once again, another very, very impressive kicking performance. And um, I particularly like that little switch pass he played out to, uh, well, for McElroy's chance that he that he probably should have taken in the second half. I mean, he's a very clever player. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's, I suppose that's why, you know, you're getting so many people now saying that he plays like a 30-year-old rather than a... Rather than a twenty-year-old, I don't know whether it's good to play like a thirty-year-old. Like thirty is definitely when they, whenever the old athletic ability starts to weigh in a bit. Like, um, but uh, but anyway, people are saying it like it's a good thing, and I think again, you know, we, we've talked about this time and time again, but it's a godsend really how he's performed this season because we all know how important John Cooney is, and through various injuries, he's played very little compared to how many the percentage of the minutes that he would have played in years past. So um, it really has been, and obviously by nature of being a weekly podcast, we are perhaps repeating ourselves, but week on week, he really has been such an important element of this season. And similar to Robert Balakoon, like, and we did say this early in Robert's career as well, but it really doesn't feel like you're stretching anything or that you're being hyperbolic in any way to say that Nathan Doak will in all likelihood be an Ireland player in the near future. It's going to be really interesting to see how that shakes out because I suppose we've been talking about Nathan up here for a while in the same way that people, more, you know, more Ireland-wide media have been talking about Craig Casey. So Craig Casey was yeah. almost seen as 
the anointed successor to Conor Murray. Now, ultimately, Jameson Gibson Park took Conor Murray's starting jersey from him, but the feeling was always that no matter who was nine, it was sort of being held warm for <laughs> Craig Casey. And to see that battle between Casey and Doak, it could be something that goes on for years to come. You know, we have an awful lot of talk in Irish rugby history about the 10 jersey and the battles for the 10 jersey. But obviously people go back to Campbell and Ward, but whenever you're talking about things like Saxon and O'Gara and O'Gara and Humphreys, there's been a sort of arc and the two have met in the middle. But you haven't, in those more modern 10 rivals, you didn't have what you could theoretically have for the nine jersey where it's just two guys working their way from a relatively similar point hitting their peak at a relatively similar time and whoever the international coach is having to choose between the two. Which, as we said earlier, is uh, it's a very good sign for Harland to have that uh, that depth. Duke is two years younger than Craig Casey, but as you say, in relative terms, that uh, that means, uh, means very little. So another Lister question we can throw in then. Mark Moorhead wants to know what your impressions of Declan Moore were. He said he knew nothing of him before Friday, uh, but he was really impressed. Of course, Moore was up on a short-term injury cover uh, a few weeks ago at Ulster, and then the news was announced last week that he was back on loan until the end of the season and will be joining on a two-year deal come this summer. I think it's Monster he's come up from, isn't it? And um, yeah, were you as, as impressed with him as Mark was? Yeah, I thought he played really well and more out of necessity than anything else. Like he had to play well, but he also had to go the distance because I wouldn't say there's been any other time in Eric O'Sullivan's career when he's been on the bench and glad not to get on. But um, I very much doubt he really relished uh, Ronald Hooker again. Like mm-hmm. fair play to him for uh, saying that he can do it. I imagine if he didn't, the match possibly would have been called off. Um, but as we all saw with Joe Marlow's throw into the line out in, uh, in Murrayfield on Saturday, that's not a position any uh, Lucette prop wants to find themselves in. So, you know, Declan Moore went the 80 minutes, virtually had to go the 80 minutes. And despite the little uh, little spot of cramp that uh, came later on, he managed it really, really well. There were a couple of points where Maybe got a little bit overexcited uh, just uh, just before the line. Maybe went himself a few times and uh, ended up getting pinged. But on the whole, in what were very, very difficult circumstances with John Andrew being a late scratch, a really, really strong uh, strong performance from him. So Ulster obviously losing Bradley Roberts this summer, but they do still have uh, Rob Herring there, Tom Stewart and John Andrew, as you say, as well. Are you a little bit surprised to to see Declan's two-year deal being announced or were you fully expecting there'd be a Roberts replacement coming in? Ah, well, they obviously said that, you know, they were looking for an Irish qualified um, replacement for Bradley Roberts who had ceased to be Irish qualified in November. So it's not surprising. They obviously got a decent look at him when he was up, whenever he was up the last time and maybe just the hooker situation hastened his arrival a wee bit because it's not that long since he uh, returned to Munster for him to be coming back up but obviously with just uh, with Tom Stewart out and um, the other two lads being involved in the Six Nations Ulster were mm-hmm. so you can say three lads actually being involved internationally because obviously Ulster could call James McCormick back from the under-20s if they wanted to but uh, you know he was involved um, on Friday night against Wales under-20s as well so they yeah they, they find themselves in a bit of a pinch and they managed to uh, get through it I don't think 
John Andy will be unavailable for the uh, for the Dragons game, so could ease somewhat by the next time we see Ulster. Obviously, with them not playing this weekend. Yeah, fingers crossed. So on the game, a little bit more generally, Donal says that Dan often cites Ulster's third quarter, but more recently, the fourth has looked more shaky. He thinks what's to blame for Ulster's leakiness when in winning positions, or as was the case this time, an inability to be clinical in those latter quarters as progress been made over the course of the season so far. Obviously, Ulster were... Uh, had three tries, scored at half time, but took until injury time and uh, with Connaught down, down a man to get the, the bonus point um, just about over the line. So uh, what do you think? Also, is uh, Donald being fair enough about those fourth quarter struggles and um, what's to blame? Oh, yeah, for sure. But I, I do think they are different sorts of struggles, but obviously they're also different sorts of struggles in the context of very different levels of opposition. So in Europe, we saw an inability to hold leads to the point, sorry, not an inability to hold leads, they still held the leads. But they just made it exciting. Yes, they made they made it good TV for those that were <laughs> uh, for those who were at home watching. Terrible for journalists trying to get their reports away on the whistle, but nobody ever cares about that. So I don't know why I keep moaning about it. <laughs> Whereas what we've seen the last two weeks is perhaps, you know, they've never looked in danger of losing those games. But I do agree with Donald 100%. Like, if they hadn't have got the bonus point from that game, having scored their third try when the clock was in the red in the first half, it really would have felt like a point dropped. And the, the difference in the amount of games played in the league really has skewed the value of a point gained and a point lost. But, you know, that's the kind of thing that you can look back on at the end of the season and be like, you know, we had 40 minutes, didn't score another try. So it was, in this case, it certainly was being clinical because they had plenty of opportunities, whether it be in the 22, whether it be 10 metres out, whether it be five metres out. They had so many opportunities to get that fourth try before they did. Like we asked Dan about it afterwards and he mentioned, you know, the Connacht defence, hugely committed, questioned whether it was always 100% legal. The Connacht defence was good, but like, as I say, it really, like, it really would have felt like a point dropped had had Connor not continued to play because they obviously could have put the ball out with nothing to play for <laughs> and uh, denied Ulster that bonus that bonus yeah. point but uh decided to keep playing and obviously Ulster were were glad they did could that be something uh, on the other hand that that Connor well I suppose it doesn't really matter the Connor whether Ulster get a bonus point or not Connor or or if one finishes you know if one finishes fifth and one finishes fourth by a point, you know, that's the difference between... Uh, uh, but Ulster uh, aren't going to drop that many points let Connacht back at them, are they? I get, no, probably not. But, you know, <laughs> Connacht could go on a run. We don't know. Stranger things have happened. Stranger things have happened. So, Connacht yeah, not- win as many games as they look like they should win. Then they could <laughs> get that many points, but... Uh, we'll see. On that point of the, the season in general, then, Julian Funes, or uh, apologies if I'm pronouncing that wrong, which is uh, probably fairly likely. It's a phonetic one for next week, and we'll get it right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, given Ulster's position in both the URC and Europe, is there one competition Dan will be focusing on more than the other? So, for anybody who uh, isn't sure or doesn't remember, in Europe, Ulster are second in Poulet on 19 points, as have the uh, leaders, Racing 92, and then La Rochelle, three points behind, Leinster a further point behind, then in the league, Ulster are now... Two points clear at the top of their pool. 
way, but as you say, lots of teams have played lots of different numbers of games. Edinburgh two points behind with a game less, Glasgow five behind with a game less, Leinster six behind with two games less. So I suppose maybe a little bit harder to know just how things are stacking up. So if you were Dan McFarland, would you be um, putting more eggs in one basket or the other? Not at the minute. I think that kind of situation won't arise because first, sorry, won't arise until later in the season. Because first of all, as Dan's pointed out, at the minute he doesn't really have any selection choices. You know, like we've mentioned it before already. You know, we're talking about a side that had a loose head as a replacement hooker on uh, on Friday night there. So like he doesn't really have an option to like rest guys for Europe yet and probably won't do given Six Nations and um, that South Africa trip all to come before the two legs against Toulouse. And then if they were to get through that, then, you know, the next legs being of Europe being the start of May, sorry, the quarterfinal and semifinal being the start of May, you would like to think, like to think, that Ulster would almost have enough points by then to not be overly concerned about what's going to come after that. Obviously, the home and away situation in terms of the league knockouts skews this somewhat, but you'd like to think that Ulster would have a dead rubber or two at the end of their league campaign. Yeah, although, you know, as you say, it's the home the home advantage part of that that could, uh, that could mean they're not, not quite dead rubbers, and obviously that could be so significant too, so... We'll yeah, see. I mean, obviously, you know, Ulster have gone away and won in a semi-final in Europe, which takes it off somewhat. But obviously, you'd always rather have it here. I I know that if every team wins all of their games in hand, then Ulster could drop to fifth. But I don't see them finishing outside that top four. Obviously, it becomes a different kettle of fish if they're going for the top two. This is very similar to what we had in Europe, obviously, um, this type of scenario. But um. I just think the way the season's structured with the European games in terms of the last 16 being in consecutive weeks and then the um, quarterfinals, semifinals, should you get there being in consecutive weeks, I think it probably becomes more of an issue for, and we've seen this before with Leinster, like if a team gets to the final of both, it's a, diff- it's a difficult thing to go back to back. I know, you know, Leinster did it in 2018, but it's, it's not easy done when you get to that stage. So we're expecting things to be tough for Ulster when they reach both finals. Then is what we're saying. Yeah, whenever they're whenever they're going for the double, haven't <laughs> won a trophy in two thousand and since two thousand and six, and then have to decide which one they want to win more. <laughs> yeah, tough choice, isn't it? We'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Yeah, I think I think it maybe take that uh, take that difficulty if it were presented to yeah. the Nile. Absolutely. So obviously, as you said, they're a little while ago. Week break for Ulster now then and uh, they'll be taking on the Dragons in their next game not until Sunday week Sunday the 20th of February so we'll uh, leave provincial matters for the time being the main meal of last week's rugby weekend was of course the Six Nations Ireland stuffed Wales 29-7 Wales very uh, very fortunate to get those seven points with a few minutes to go uh, or... <laughs> fortunate to get nil if they hadn't scored <laughs> yeah yeah so, obviously, Annie Farrell has been in charge of Ireland for a while now, and it does feel like this is sort of his team, his setup now. There were those difficult stages early on, but I feel it's probably appropriate to ask just uh, 
how excited you think people should be getting over this Ireland team because it was such a big win and uh, no doubt now it has sparked uh, sparked chats about potential the Grand Slam victories but um, I know you're Mr Realism Jonathan so can you We're one year out from a World Cup and all of a sudden Ireland are the best <laughs> team in the world who saw it coming You could set your watch bet <laughs> So uh, yes Mr Realism just how, how excited are we allowed to get? I think people should get excited Oh my word! Somebody sound the klaxon. Here's the bot. I was not alone in thinking this. So this isn't like a massive mea culpa or anything. <laughs> but I did not see this Ireland team going anywhere a year ago. <laughs> I was confused by Ireland a year ago. Uh-huh. Perhaps even perplexed by Ireland a year ago. And for them, they really love nine wins since, obviously, including the fact that they've beaten England and beaten the All Blacks. Of course, people should be excited. One thing they haven't done, though, so here's my note of caution, is they haven't won any of these big games outside of Dublin. Yeah, it is. You know? Bit of it, isn't it? And as you've said in the podcast before, World Cups are not played at the Aviva Stadium. No. So the last big game, if you like, that Ireland won outside of Dublin was obviously the Six Nations and Murrayfield was a big game, but like you're not going to win a World Cup if you can't beat a team better than Scotland away from home. That's no disrespect to Scotland. No, my uh, my adopted team, Scotland. Handy then that they do come up against France this weekend and perhaps uh, a, an opportunity to really take away your only note of caution and um, put us into... I don't know what we're going to talk about next week. I said, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll address that in a little minute or two because uh, we've discussed, obviously, Big Jim's question that started off the podcast in terms of getting excited on Friday night over Balakoon and, and Larry and thinking they're bound to start for Ireland to then the flip side of that on Saturday afternoon because um, Mac Hansen obviously came in with a man of the match performance, came in from nowhere and uh, couldn't have gone much better for him, could it? No, like I suppose he could have scored after 90 seconds. That would have been uh, the real the real <laughs> dream start. I thought he was going to. Yeah. Um but then, obviously, that uh, that you know that chase down the wing did result in Wales conceding the line out. It was his pass then to Pudaki over in the corner off that line out eventually, and from there Ireland never looked like they were going to lose, and that was the third minute. Yeah, that was about it. So if we take it in, and as you mentioned earlier too, Andrew Conway has two tries, two tries, so. I know we sort of discussed it a little bit earlier, but if you're if you're going in now, it is really tough for Robert Balakoon. Like, where do you do you see him getting a getting a start over this Six Nations now outside Italy? Do you know what? I would still like to see it for all the reasons that I talked about last week, but I don't think it's this week. No, no. Like, I, sorry, I sorry, I don't even know if Farah will do it at all. I still would do it. Yeah. In future rounds of the Six Nations, over the next three, I would play all some combination of all those guys that we talked about last week. But I think to go to Paris away, given how England played, it really does feel like this is the key game of the championship. And it's always a balance between building for the future, building for World Cups, and winning what, up until 1987, was the tournament that you wanted to win over all others. I don't think I'd be skewed away from that balance enough just yet to say that I wouldn't go full strength for the what looks to be the defining game of the championship. But 
I would still be sprinkling in the likes of Laurie, the likes of Balakun, the likes of Coombs into those final three games, regardless of the result on Saturday. Yeah, I might change my mind about that if we get to like chasing a grand slam exactly. on the last game. I reserve the right to change my <laughs> mind, but but right now I'm saying I would still do it. Okay, but for this weekend, then I'm I'm sure there's not many people predicting any sort of meaningful changes, which obviously isn't great news for. The Ulster players, how many or who are you expecting to to get an involvement from an Ulster point of view this weekend? I mean, I can see Henderson coming onto the bench for sure. Like we're talking about not changing the only team, but like Henderson's still a lion, you know what I mean? Like I'd bring, yeah. I'd bring him onto the bench ahead of Brian Barrett if he's ready to go. Like, yeah, um, he, he was back training mid last week, wasn't he? So we'd have yeah, a good yeah. bit of training behind him by this. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we can almost make too much of it, but he, he never needs too much of a run-up to hit full no, speed. Either, true, so. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd certainly expect to see him in there. Obviously, Rob being injured takes him out. That really does leave Dan Sheehan almost unopposed to that 16 jersey. You can have your own thoughts about whether you think he would have had it anyway. And I suppose the thing could be, you know, we're talking about Handy being a line, you bring him straight back in. Well, if the same applies for Henshaw, you know, is in danger. Yeah, and I, d- I don't even think it's ideal to have three out-and-out centres in your 23. I know obviously Henshaw can, can play fullback, has played fullback in the Six Nations somewhat disastrously, to be fair, but um, <laughs> I, still, I still don't think it's an ideal use of your bench. I said that last week when I was talking about the potential for Laurie to be on the bench, but equally, I suppose... The thinking was that Hume's form warranted uh, warranted a go in this championship, which he's now got. So, um, having called for that last week, I can't really complain about it actually happening. <laughs> but you know, is Farrell going to leave one of Aki Ringrose and Henshaw out of his twenty-three? It'd be tough to see it, wouldn't it? I can't see it. I can't see it. No. And and so we could be looking at one again, but it just could be a different one. Yeah, because the likes of Conor Murray and Joey Carberry on the bench. They're not going to give way for for Michael Lowry either. No, no. Like I would say, Carberry and Murray are firmly, firmly in there on your bench. But and as we said, like all of this, uh, you can't argue if there's one. If there's just one Ulster player in the game, you absolutely can't argue with any of this. No, I'm sure somebody could. It's it is difficult because on form the guys should be playing. But the thing about saying on form the guys should be playing is you also have to say who on form shouldn't be playing. And that's very hard to do at the minute because over the course of a nine-game winning streak, obviously, everybody's playing well. Like, Hansen wouldn't have been playing if James Lowe was fit. Hansen come in and got man of the match. Okay. Would James Lowe even be playing if Stockdale was fit? <laughs> Whenever they were both fit, Stockdale played against England last year. James Lowe was man of the match against the All Blacks. Strength and depth. Strength and depth. That is it. So if we look at uh, this weekend's game, Dono has a good way to, to look at it as always. On Saturday, he said uh, the two Six Nations favourites will go head-to-head. Who do you think offered the best warm-up? Was it Wales against Ireland or was it Italy against France? And does having to even ask that question say more about Wales or about Italy? Obviously, Wales were, uh, were pasted in Dublin, as we talked about, and... France got a 37-10 win over the Italians. So could it be that Italy actually offered more of a test last weekend to France and Wales did Darren? Like Andy Farrell was asked about this and obviously he did sort of bat it away, not in relation to Italy, but like 
was that almost too easy for it to be good preparation? <laughs> and you know, he didn't give it uh, didn't give it much shrift. It has to be said, but um, you do have to wonder because I actually thought my problem with it, watching Italy in the Six Nations last year was they were so bad defensively that every time the other team attacked, they looked like they were going to score, and that's when rugby becomes boring. Mm-hmm. Like high scoring rugby games can be more boring than like 10-7 rugby games if you get what I mean mm-hmm. because there's nothing more pointless to my mind than watching teams score on a post because then it feels like you're watching a training session and that was Italy last year mm-hmm. but it certainly was in Italy yesterday yeah. like some of their defensive efforts against France were really superb and obviously like France hit a bit of rhythm you would have expected them to look a little bit out of sorts early given the amount of players that hadn't played in a while because of COVID but like I mean it was a game like mm. and that's more than can be said for so much of what we've seen from Italy recently was Ireland Wales a game not really I mean with the introduction of the bonus point system we were able to maintain interest until the hour mark but like yeah, yeah. It was game away really during that yellow card period and should have put it to bed earlier. And like you say, Wales never looked like they were going to score until uh, that intercept. In saying that, Rory Best, uh, as part of his column in uh, Sunday Independence, it just wrote that he was in the ITV studio with Gareth Thomas. And he had said that if the players in green had been wearing black jerseys on Saturday, we'd have been raving about how good that display was. Is is talking about how bad Wales were discrediting Ireland's performance. Like we're, we probably do here maybe more than anywhere have that tendency to maybe negate how, how good Ireland are at times. Maybe it's fear of uh, of getting carried away with ourselves. But uh, was it, is it unfair in Ireland to frame it in that way? I don't think it's unfair. Like there is always that sort of Irish thing of, you know, there's an innate Irish thing if you don't want to be seen to be getting too big for your boots. And then there's also harsh lessons learned through the recent history of Irish rugby I would say probably going back to 2007 that you certainly don't want to be seen to be getting too big for your boots but over the course of a night you know you can't get lucky nine times in a row by playing bad opposition now the caveat there is that they have played southern hemisphere teams in the autumn when they're traditionally always fairly close to the end of their season but at the same time Ireland have beat New Zealand three times. So there has to be merit to that result, regardless of when it's played, because it didn't help any any Irish team for 111 years to be playing them at the end of their season. They've beat England. Wins against England, I think, are always a good measuring stick, given the inherent structural differences that mean England should always be either the best or second best team in the Northern Hemisphere. So in isolation, do I think the Wales game merits talk of Ireland being among the best sides in the world? No, probably not, because you have to take Wales into the equation. But if you look at what they've done over the course of this winning run, which is now basically 11 months old, and started at a time when, as I say, there were lots of us not sure if this, not even not sure what direction this team was going, and just didn't think this team had any direction. Mm-hmm. And since they've only gone one way, like we said, France is the acid test. Twickenham, no matter what England are like, is still going to be a big test. And I think we'll know a hell of a lot more in four weeks 
than we know today. So in terms of what well, we'll probably know more next week, even than we than we do this week as well. And in terms of the the game this weekend, as we've said, probably the game of the championship. Where where will this be won and lost? The the battle at centre is obviously going to be massive with Fenshaw and Ring Rosie and Fiku and, and Dante. If he's fit after coming off last weekend, it, the front row is going to be a huge battle. Where do you see it uh, being swung? I think the front row is going to be huge because Ireland's front row, to me, should have got more credit for that Wales victory than they did, the performance that they put in. Their points of difference are so many. Like, you know, the tight furlong pass, it could be a pass to Johnny Sexton is what goes viral, but like Andrew Porter at the breakdown, one in, turn, in turnovers, Andrew Porter, just the sheer strength of Andrew Porter to rip the ball clean and set up the, really put uh, into motion that Gary Ringrose try. They're just, oh, they're just a superb unit, like Ireland's, and more specifically, I think the two props, the two props are world-class, like, but the French, <laughs> the French front row is, a different thing than you have to face. Like we talk about this whenever Irish sides are going to play French teams in Europe. Like it's a, it's a different beast. And that's going to be a huge challenge because as good as those points of difference are, you still need to get the bread and butter. And the bread and butter is going to be tested against France. Like it's not going to be tested at any other stage of the Six Nations. Centres, yeah, obviously Fiki, class player. Dante was looking really good before he went off injured. Again, you have the depth because they didn't really miss a beat after they took Dante off either. Mm -hmm. Aki, really good game. I thought really, really, really good game on Saturday. Ringrose looked really good. I do feel slightly unkind mentioning this, but that performance does have to be viewed in light of uh, his opposite numbers, lack thereof, of a performance. See, you're doing this thing. You're discrediting Ireland. Shocking. Yeah, I, I, I just think... (laughs) <laughs> there'll, there'll be tougher days for Ireland, yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, you know? Yeah, and, and one very quickly. Coming very quickly. Yeah. So one more question before we uh, discuss the, the under-20 scheme very quickly. Mickey wants to know, I believe it's the first question for Mickey, welcome to the podcast. Uh, he says, well, Ireland has very much been my other team after Ulster Rugby. I've been feeling less involved or interested in the past couple of seasons. Is there anyone else feeling a bit left out? Now, obviously, it's a couple of seasons since Rory Best was not the Irish captain anymore, since Jacob Stockdale just fell off being arguably Ireland's Ireland's biggest headline player if there are people feeling like that is it just down to down to that the the Ulster players aren't the the key men anymore or what or is there more to it than that what do you think it's really interesting because it's obviously interesting to think about if that's the case then why it is I get a sense that it's much more that it one it is a minority but it's a much more sizable minority than some other people would have you believe it. It's something you see on social media talked about relatively regularly, and it's sort of dismissed as, you know, no real Irish rugby fan would think that. But the fact of the matter is, and even anecdotally, I know that there is 
people who do feel that way that um I suppose the lack of all suppliers almost makes them feel like a lack of representation or something. But like, you know, I've read pieces before where there's things about, you know, how the English football team is mainly supported by fans of teams from the lower leagues because the premiership, you know, fans of premiership teams can't switch their allegiance to follow their rivals, if that makes sense. So, you know, like fans of Chelsea can't get behind a team where Harry Kane's the best player sort of thing. Mm. and I don't know if maybe that plays into it. I remember directing an unkind gesture towards Johnny Evans as he drove off at the front of the Manchester United bus sitting beside Sir Alex Ferguson and then a week later was cheering him on in Belfast. <laughs> <laughs> I never like it when Northern Ireland had Arsenal players, but thankfully there weren't, uh, there weren't too many down the, down the years. Stevie no, Morrow. Not in our lifetimes anyway. No, no, there used to be quite a few actually. Yeah. But, but yeah. I, I, I think... Basically, there are a good number of people who feel that way. I don't think it's quantifiable to say whether more people here feel that way than would say if it was Munster, because, you know, there used to always be this idea that players from Limerick teams in Munster had a chip on their shoulder because they had to play twice as well as a guy from a Dublin club to get selected for Ireland. And then guys from clubs in Cork had a chip on both shoulders because they had to be twice as good as the guys in Limerick and three times as good as the as the guys in Dublin. In the professional era, that's not really been the case because there's always been a relatively healthy contingent from Munster. There's always been a majority contingent, really, from Leinster. And over the course of the professional era, it really has been the Ulster representation that hasn't been as strong as it would have been historically. It probably didn't get flagged that much because it was always Rory Best. He never missed a game. I think he missed two Six Nations games going back to like 2008, I think, um, and was in the squad before that. And then David Humphreys didn't miss an awful lot of games either, so there was always somebody. Yeah. And then there was a time on... Thursday, well, Wednesday night, Thursday morning, when all the talk uh, unconfirmed was that there wasn't going to be anyone. And I think mm-hmm. to go back to, you would have had to go back to the, like, the late 90s when all of Ulster's players were playing in England for the last time that it actually happened. Well, who knows? So before in, this... sorry, in, in the Six Nations, it's, it has happened in other, like, yeah, yeah, but yeah, lesser games. Who knows, before the end of the Six Nations, the way things are going, it's maybe not beyond the realms of possibility that it uh, it could happen yet. Fingers crossed it won't do. But an interesting talking point from Mickey there. And uh, if you have any thoughts on that, do let us know on Twitter at your roundup. It would be, be very interesting to get uh, some of your thoughts on that one during the Six Nations. So we have uh, Ireland under-20s. First game to look back at quickly before we go as well. If there was a, a right in Dublin with the senior side there was also a rout with the under 20s because Ireland beat Wales 53-5 which um, maybe is a further indictment in Welsh rugby as a whole but it's uh, another I boost. Was say, I hope we don't have any Welsh listeners but of course we oh, do or of course we do we, we certainly have done in the past so it would be interesting to know if the Welsh Ulster Rugby Supporters Club are Ireland or well, are Wales supporters I just assumed they were uh, expats, but uh, do you know, 
maybe they have changed. I would, say, I would say that with the size of the group, there's bound to be a few uh, Welsh locals in there as well as the experts. Well, we may apologise then for uh, giving their national team such a such a hard time here, but they brought it on themselves, if truth be told. So, uh, despite <laughs> <laughs> this being so thoroughly disappointing, <laughs> the the under twenties then there was a much healthier. Ulster representation because the captain Ruben Crothers obviously started. He was joined by James McNabney and James McCormick. All three of those guys actually scored tries and Scott Wilson started as well. Josh Hannon and Adam McNamee were named on the bench. John Glasgow was the only one in the wider squad not to be in the match day squad for Ireland. So how did they get on? Obviously very well, but... Uh, yeah, Ulster, every, everybody played well. If you think it's hard to find fault with... Um with the Ireland senior team then try uh, try the under 20s um, did any of those Ulster guys sort of catch your your eye in particular I suppose is a better question I thought uh, Ruben Crawlers looked very mature now you would expect him to look mature because this is obviously his, um, his second year at this level and as the captain but I was impressed with his uh, performance and I suppose um, demeanour as well I'd, I'd be very curious to see how this group progresses because Wales have been tracking this way. You know, it's been a sort of bugbear of Welsh rugby fans that the under-20s haven't been going well. So once the senior team stops doing well, are they in for a sort of darker darker period than they've been used to over the last, um, I suppose, through the entire Gatland era, really? But um be interesting to see, I think, how they do the next couple of weeks as well. It will certainly be interesting indeed to look at that over the next few weeks. So Ireland under-20s will be playing in France on Friday evening at 8 o'clock. That game once again on the BBC iPlayer, so you can get a little look this time. Handily doesn't clash with any Ulster games, so uh, you'll be able to get a good look at how all of the Ulster guys fare in that one. And then on Saturday afternoon, it's France against Ireland at the 4 45 p.m. in terms of the other Six Nations games, 2.15 this week is Wales against Scotland and then Italy. The England is a Sunday at three o'clock. So uh, Ulster, uh, a rugby heavy weekend ahead again, although Ulster, of course, not not playing themselves. But uh, we'll be back next weekend to look back at all of that and ahead to Ulster's game against Dragons. But for this week, from Jonathan Bradley and uh, of course, Gareth Hanna, thank you very much for listening.